Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Ohio State University Athletic Director Gene Smith announced this week that he's retiring next year. We've got a few minutes of his comments coming up. State Issue 1 was defeated on Tuesday. We'll hear from Ohio Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown about that. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, Andrew Kinsey looks at past constitutional issues and just how important that 60% threshold that Issue 1 tried to enforce for passage of future amendments is. And Lindsey Mills provides an update on what's going on with East Palestine these days, some six months after the toxic train derailment there. In the second half hour, I'll talk with a state director for Ohio AARP about the increase in families caring for elderly relatives in their home. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the Associate Clinical Director of Nationwide Children's Hospitals on Our Sleeves Initiative. First up on Columbus Perspective, on Wednesday of this week, Ohio State University Athletic Director Gene Smith announced he will retire at the end of June of next year. We've got a couple of answers to some questions that reporters ask following his initial statement, but first, here is his initial statement. It runs about six minutes. Here's Athletic Director Gene Smith. I have an announcement to make today, and I appreciate uh, you guys uh, allowing me to make this announcement through you. Um, Sheila and I have made a decision that effective uh, June 30th of 2024, we're going to retire from the Ohio State University. had a great opportunity to, to work with a lot of people here. And, and I just want to thank the, the leadership of Ohio State. Uh, was during my tenure, um, they before, provided me an unbelievable opportunity to, to lead this program. And so the last 19 years, uh, or 18 years, and started my 19th has been phenomenal. Uh, the presidents and the board of trustees that I've worked for uh, have just been tremendous and just great people. Um, great opportunities they provided me. I've always believed that a a leader seeks to be the right person at the right time in the the life of an institution. And uh, I just believe that July of 2024 is the right time to welcome in new leadership, uh, to to build on what we've already achieved. Uh, Made this announcement now affords me the opportunity to work with my colleagues uh, in the president's cabinet, um, and hopefully uh, facilitate a, a transition for the next president once uh, she or he is appointed. But after a 39-year career in intercollegiate athletics and administration, Sheila and I look forward to our next chapter when we plan to spend more consistent quality time with our children, our grandchildren, and uh, our extended family. I also want to thank Buckeye Nation for its support. At Ohio State, uh, we are truly blessed to have the best fans in the land. I think we all know that, and and, uh, we're just fortunate to to have them. Along with Buckeye Nation, I also want to thank the leadership of our business community. Um, I'm immensely grateful to the network of business leaders who have invested in me and invested in our success. I want to thank the members of the media. Um, I understand and I truly respect the job uh, that uh, you have to do, even though sometimes I don't always agree with what you say. At the end of the day, you guys uh, do a tremendous job and you have a tough job and it's gotten tougher over the years. So uh, thank you for for everything that you do. Um, I also wish to thank the many donors. 
uh, the great experiences that I've enjoyed and uh, special memories that were created and uh, their commitment and generosity to our vision um, has been phenomenal. And I just want to thank them for their great support and, and all of uh, the generosity of Buckeye Nation. I also want to thank the coaches and support staff uh, with whom I've been blessed to work. I've been fortunate to work with some of the best in the business, and I'm aware that I stood on their shoulders, and, and this last year I will stand on their shoulders. And uh, they're the finest in the country, and uh, every single day they come to work to, to try and ensure that our athletic department is the premier athletic department in the country, and uh, I want to thank them for their great work. Lastly and most importantly, it's been a pleasure every single day and an honor uh, to wake up and, and uh, come to work and, and try and create an environment for our student athletes to be successful. Uh, they're talented, they're gifted, uh, they're the best there is, and uh, it's just been my honor and my inspiration every single day to work for them. This past year, we witnessed unprecedented performances. Uh, teams finished third in the Director's Cup. 95% uh, of our graduates uh, found jobs or were going professional or going to go to graduate school. We hit our best APR score in the history at, at 993, so it was a phenomenal year for our student-athletes. So it was unbelievable. Uh, so I'm extremely proud of uh, the individual team and, and team championships has been one during my tenure, but I'm more proud of uh, our efforts to develop student athletes holistically, uh, personally, and, and uh, to become future leaders. And uh, so I'm really proud of them. Uh, as senior vice president, I also have the role, uh, along with my colleague Mike Papadakis, to lead business advancement. And um, business advancement continues uh, to do a great job uh, with concerts uh, in this community and particularly with our uh, partnership with Nationwide Arena. Um, our trademark and licensing program is, is the number one program in the country. It has evolved in, in so many different ways. Uh, and, and we've optimized the use of all of our facilities uh, because of the business investment efforts. Um, just really proud of them. But most importantly and lastly, I'm really uh, fortunate um, to have a wife who understands my world. Um, we all understand that. you got to have a partner that uh, is supportive, and she's been supportive for a long time. And uh, was a great friend, great colleague. Uh, fortunately, she had been in the business, so she appreciates it. Uh, uh, but she's been my emotional support through good times and, and bad times. So. I don't know where the hell she is. She was here a minute ago. Love you, baby. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, Sheila. Um, so I also want to thank my children and grandchildren because uh, they've uh, embraced, embraced uh, Buckeye Nation in a big way and taken advantage of the opportunities to party. So I uh, really appreciate uh, their support uh, throughout this time. Um, this, this, uh, we have another year to chase a lot of opportunities, and um, we're going to chase them hard like we always do. Ohio State University Athletic Director Gene Smith announcing Wednesday that he will retire at the end of June of next year. In follow-up to his statement, he answered some questions. One question was whether or not the realignment with Pac-12 schools coming into the Big Ten had anything to do with his decision. Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I, you know, I, I've always embraced change. Um, we've seen a lot of change, and so... Uh, those changes were not a part of the, this, this, this decision. Um, you know, uh, 
everything that's happening, I've, some of it I've seen before, you know, realignment. Um, I was blessed to be a part of the committee that went from the Big 8 to the Big 12. So realignment's not new to me. Uh, NIL's new to me, uh, but, um, you know, the transfer portal's not new to me. Um, you know, our Olympic sports have been dealing with that for years. And so, um, you know, the changes in the industry is not what caused me to say I needed to step away. Um, I just have always felt, and my mentors have always said, you will know when it's time. You'll know. And uh, this summer, Sheena and I sat down, and, and we, she was asking me a million questions, and I just said, uh, it's time. You know, and I do believe that. What I said, it's uh, uh, there's the right time for certain leaders at right the right time of an institution. And I, I really believe with this presidential change, which will be highly positive, whoever they hire gives her or him the opportunity to hire their leader and make a run and build on what uh, these coaches and staff and student-athletes have already done. Smith was also asked about the best and worst of times at his job at Ohio State. You know, there's so many great moments. You know, I, you know the... It was funny, the, the, the national championship in football was, was special. Um, you know, the, the three national championships in volleyball, men's volleyball was special. The, the, uh, um, the wrestling national championship was unreal. I think I was in North Carolina with women's basketball and had to fly to St. Louis in order to catch that, you know, to, to see those young men perform. So there's been championships. and. And individual student athletes who know just been so impressive. Uh, uh, Christina Manning in track was—I mean, she was just fun to watch. Uh, so it's just just so, so many of those. But I, I'm most proud of uh, the fact that we've been able to create a culture where we develop the student athlete holistically, and that's that's that means so much to me, Rob. It really does. That it took us a little bit the transition to that, uh, to make sure that when that student-athlete leaves our little cocoon, uh, she and she or he is ready. They're ready for the next chapter in their life. And we didn't do that well when I first came. We didn't. And I have to compliment my teammates or everybody because uh, they, they all embrace that vision of, um, making sure we challenge the student athlete early in their career, their freshman year and sophomore year, to make them figure out what you know what path they might want to be on, and um, and put in place the program. So I'm most proud of that. Uh, our kids have great character; they're really good people, and that that that's that's cool to me. Challenge, you know, uh, 2011 was hell. You know, um, you know, I um, that was painful. You know, I, I uh, uh, the, the student athletes who were impacted um, uh, didn't deserve uh, the the uh, penalties that they had to uh, uh, deal with. Uh, that was hard. Um, people were uh, effective negatively, and that was a hard time. And, and so, um, you know, helping Luke Fickle through that year was hard. Uh, that was really challenging, and. Uh, and I have to compliment him for his resiliency and his commitment and, and um, you know, just his stick to itness uh, to, to try and, and keep our program afloat. Uh, so uh, that was a hard year, uh, dog years. Uh, and obviously uh, COVID 
we all had that. I mean, I shouldn't talk about that because that should be all in our rearview mirror because we all went through that. But you guys know that story. And, uh, so that was a hard year. Ohio State University Athletic Director Gene Smith announcing this week he will retire next year. The 2011 season, of course, was following Tattoo Gate with Jim Trestle leaving. The Buckeyes were 6-7 and seven in 2011 following that year. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. It might be hard to imagine, but there's a place where you can find a restaurant on every corner. A place where you can eat like a king for as little as a dollar. It might be hard to imagine, but this is the same place where the school lunches aren't just delicious. They're themed with palate pleasers like mozzarella stick Mondays, taco Tuesdays, and French Fridays. Heck, even pizza counts as a vegetable here. This is a place where the fast food just keeps getting faster. You can even order delivery right from your video game console. And how's the food, you ask? Well, it is to die for. Don't believe us? Just ask the friends and family of the 300,000 who did last year. Welcome to the state of America. Welcome to Obesity USA. Population 115 million and getting bigger by the day. To learn more, go to visitobesity.org. That's visitobesity.org. Brought to you by the Pennington Biomedical Research Foundation. Hi, I'm Dom Tiberi. Nine years ago, we lost our daughter Maria to a distracted driving accident. To honor her life, we have pledged to educate young people on the dangers of distracted driving. We funded simulators and visited schools to inspire more than 120,000 young drivers to stay safe. Help spread Maria's message in your school. Contact us at mariasmessage at 10tv.com. And remember, distracted driving is dangerous driving. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Tuesday, Issue 1 was defeated in Ohio by a vote of 57 to 43 percent. If it had passed, it would have required petition drives, signatures, to be gathered from all 88 counties in Ohio to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot instead of the current 44 counties. And it also would have required a 60 percent or more approval from voters in order for that constitutional amendment to pass. Since it was defeated, then it remains at 44 counties for signature gathering and a simple majority on the voting, such as the abortion amendment that's coming in November. Courtesy of 10TV, here's Kevin Landers with a brief report about Issue 1's loss. Issue 1's rejection means it is status quo in Ohio. That means citizen-initiated amendments will only need a simple majority plus one, not the 60% threshold, and there will be no changes to the signature gathering. So now we turn our eyes to November, and that will decide abortion rights will be enshrined in the Ohio Constitution. This is going to be another historic election because Ohio is the only state with abortion on the ballot this year. Results has abortion rights supporters feeling victory is close at hand, while Republicans look to rework their strategy to ban abortion. Now, collectively, both sides on on either side of the Issue 1 campaign spent a collective $15 million dollars You can expect that to be eclipsed come November. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. Also the morning after the election, U.S. Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown talked about issue one. This runs just about a minute and a half. I think the the most stunning thing from last night is the turnout. Uh, The the fact that, um, you know, millions of Ohioans went to vote because they they knew that um, this was a power grab by um, power-hungry politicians in Columbus and they weren't going to stand for it. That was really remarkable. I believe the Secretary of State said he thought that turnout would be single digits. It was almost 40%, so it was 
uh, at least four times what he seemed to think the turnout was going to be. Again, that's a testament to Ohioans' belief in democracy uh, and the fact that Ohioans thought it was simply unfair to take that power away from them and uh, invested in more special interest politics in the state legislature. And on top of that, the fact that um, that $20 million of taxpayers' dollars uh, were spent was um, worse than unfortunate. It was uh, pretty awful. Uh, I think people, uh, the, again, the, the, the main takeaway, the most important thing about this is people want their voices to be heard. Um, it's hard to have them heard in a redistricted Jerry, overly gerrymandered legislature that even the Republican Supreme Court Chief Justice said was gerrymandered a number of times. Uh, the voters tried to end it. Again, the power-hungry politicians in Columbus ignored what the voters wanted. Um, this one they couldn't ignore. Uh, last point, they, they scheduled this in August, uh, and the reason was they wanted, as the Secretary of State said, they wanted single-digit turnout. It didn't exactly work that way when Ohioans found out about this power grab. Ohio's Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown talking about the loss of Issue 1 the morning after the election. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS10TV, here's Tracy Townsend. From her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Good morning, and thank you so much for joining us here on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. The issue of marijuana. Groups behind the push to legalize marijuana obtained the necessary signatures, and now it goes to the county boards of elections offices and will have eight days to validate the signatures before it needs to be certified by the Secretary of State. I think the studies and data that we have now from these other states have shown that it's not a public health risk, uh, that these programs work, right? You know, it is a public health risk is to have a vibrant, illicit market free from any regulation where people selling marijuana products don't have to test them. If this is approved and passed in November, Ohio would become the 24th state to legalize marijuana. Raising minimum wage. Right now, groups behind this initiative do not have the necessary signatures. The ballot initiative would increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour by January of 2028. Take a look back at previous votes with 10TV's Andrew Kinsey. Changes to Ohio's constitution. When you look at past elections, many initiatives have failed, never reaching the current simple majority. In the last 110 years, Ohio voters have decided on 227 amendments put forward by either citizens or lawmakers. Out of the 71 citizen-led amendments, only 19 have passed. That's a 26% pass rate. When you look at amendments from lawmakers here, Ohio voters have passed a significantly higher number, 108 of the 156 put on the ballot. Let's dive a little deeper now into the 60% threshold that's in question by issue one. You can see here 76 of those 227 amendment votes reached 60% approvals. Some easily passed, like changes to the state's redistricting process, a gay marriage ban, term limits for lawmakers other than the governor, and a recent vote on rights for crime victims. Take a look at those that did not get that 60%. Those include term limits for the governor, removing straight party voting, raising the minimum wage, 
and greenlighting some casinos. 151 proposals did not get the 60 percent. And we thank Andrew for that. Tuesday's election almost didn't happen. The election day was the subject of a lawsuit. You might remember this, the lawsuit arguing that it violated a law eliminating most August elections. Backers of that law, who initially included Secretary of State LaRose, argued that such elections are costly, cause extra work for overburdened county election boards, and inspire chronically low turnouts. The state Supreme Court ruled four to three that the election could still take place. The Ohio Libertarian Party is accusing Secretary of State LaRose of violating federal law by campaigning for issue one. The group filed a complaint with the U.S. Office of Special Counsel saying that LaRose's public support violates the Hatch Act, which prohibits federally funded state employees from influencing the results of an election. He's the chief election officer. He's supposed to be an umpire. He's supposed to be neutral, objective. So and he's not. LaRose says the Hatch Act does not apply to issue campaigns. The U.S. Office of Special Counsel says they have received the complaint but cannot comment at this time. Still to come on this Sunday morning, a deep dive into the aftermath of the East Palestine train derailment. This morning, the calls to hold that railroad accountable. We still do not have the troops that we desperately need. I'm not satisfied, and I don't think the people of East Palestine should be satisfied either. What legislation will do for people who live in East Palestine and the new fight from the railroad workers, what the union is pushing for and the explosion in drug overdoses, where Ohio ranks and the new law designed to tackle illegal drugs. We'll be right back. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. What I know about courage, I learned from my adoptive mom. She said sometimes you just got to hold on and know we'll get through this. Mom, we are so high up. Hold my hand. (laughs) No, you hold my hand. Here we go. Learn about adopting a teen from foster care. You can't imagine the reward. Visit AdoptUSKids.org to find out more. The future depends on teachers. Every day, teachers are shaping our tomorrows, starting their students on journeys that will change the course of history. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who will make preventing pandemics their life's work sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who will help combat climate change and generating possibilities for a student who will be the first in their family to graduate college. It all starts with teachers who meet challenges with creativity, who reinvent education for the future, who work towards a school system that lifts up every child, regardless of race, income, or zip code, and who enable the full potential of our students, our communities, and our country. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Shape the future. Teach. 
Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. People living in East Palestine marked six months since a Norfolk Southern train crashed and derailed their sense of normalcy. The small town has since become the centerpiece of a national rail safety debate. You'll, of course, remember when that train exploded. The train cars exploded, sending toxic clouds of smoke that blackened the skies over it. But as lawmakers debate protecting future derailments, people who live in East Palestine say they're still unsure about how they are going to move forward from this crash. Here's 10TV's Lindsay Mills. No matter how much time has passed. There are many of us that are still uh, displaced. Moving on from February 3rd. We still do not have the truths that we desperately need isn't any easier. Jessica Connard lives in East Palestine. She lives close to where the derailment turned into an inferno. So does Courtney Miller. I'll show you. We visited Miller in the days following the derailment, and six months later, the evidence is all around, from the ongoing cleanup to EPA devices and a permanent health clinic. The muscle aches, cramps, my bones hurt, my joints hurt. It feels like I have arthritis. I'm 35 years old. Miller was among the thousands who evacuated their homes as the toxic vinyl chloride from the five tanker cars burned. Most have returned, though many, Miller included, complain about the illnesses and worry about what's leaked into the soil, water and air. We're just like lab rats. An NTSB investigation found an issue with detectors placed along the railroad tracks. Designed to check the temperature of each set of wheels as the train goes by, these detectors are supposed to signal when there are problems, like overheating. Surveillance video obtained by 10 Investigates shows sparks flying underneath the train miles before it derailed in East Palestine. The NTSB's preliminary report said the train passed over two other detectors before a third alerted the crew that the wheel bearing's temperature had risen by more than 250 degrees. Those detectors have been a critical piece of NTSB hearings. Until it reaches that threshold as it stands now, the crew's not notified until we have a car that's on fire. And that's just not the way we should be doing business. It endangers the community. Unions are pushing lawmakers for additional safety measures in the state. It's been the topic of hearings in Ohio and D.C. John Esterly represents some of those union workers. He says more needs to be done to prevent a repeat crash. The federal rail safety legislation that mirrors what Ohio has done um, seems to have kind of stalled out uh, at this point. Um, So we're hoping to get some momentum behind it again when folks get back from summer break. Lawmakers are hoping new legislation will keep railroads accountable and require new safety measures. We've got to give the people of East Palestine some confidence uh, that they can raise a family, work, uh, build a community in East Palestine without suffering long-term health consequences. Republican Senator J.D. Vance co-wrote the bill, reaching across the aisle to work with Senator Sherrod Brown. It would require a two-person crew in all trains. There's also funding for more detectors that watch for overheating train axles, money for training first responders on hazardous materials, and research for constructing safer rail cars that transport those materials. Vance says it's also designed to hold railways accountable. I'm not satisfied, and I don't think the people of East Palestine should be satisfied either. Firefighters who responded to the crash also struggled to immediately identify exactly what was on the train. The NTSB blamed the railroad, saying there was a breakdown of communication. Connard isn't worried about how the crash happened. She's looking for action to keep her family safe in the months following the derailment.
a group of us went to Washington, D.C. last week um, in an effort to bring um, senator support for the emergency declaration for Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Um, these are the areas, this is the 30-mile radius that has been impacted. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that we were heard. It's only been a couple days. The EPA stands by its monitoring that the air is safe. Reports published by the agency show that the air quality has remained below screening levels. Soil tests, as reported by the EPA, have also not yet detected any concerning levels of contaminants. But residents like Jessica Connard have a hard time believing it. We deserve that reassurance that our bodies are going to be taken care of in 20 years when the cancer clusters start coming. Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. We also spoke with Ohio's U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown off camera about the legislation he's working on. In the statement, Brown says in part, Norfolk Southern still hasn't cleaned up its act after years of making massive profits while cutting workers and cutting corners on safety. In the months since the derailment, Norfolk Southern has set up a training facility, it says, to help teach first responders and railroad workers alike on how to best respond to derailments. The railroad has also created a long-term fund for protecting drinking water, though it says testing shows the water is safe. The railroad faces several class action lawsuits and additional lawsuits from the state and U.S. Justice Department. Part of those are aimed at forcing the railroad company to fully cover the cost of cleanup. Now, as far as the investigation itself goes, it could take the NTSB more than a year to publish its final report. Meantime, Norfolk Southern is changing its policies when responding to overheating axles like the one that caused the East Palestine crash. The latest government numbers show the economy is expanding and Americans are still splurging. Even if the rate of inflation is slowing, those price hikes have clearly left their mark. A new CBS poll shows many of us are still worried about rising prices. Prices are the number one reason people give when asked why they call the economy bad and the top reason given when they describe their personal financial situation as bad. Here's 10TV's Andrew Kinsey with more. We've seen so far the beginnings of disinflation without any real costs in the labor market. And that's a, that's a really good thing. Chairman Powell's Fed hiked interest rates again last week, bringing them to the highest rate in 22 years. Despite the high cost of credit, some sectors are booming. For example, construction. Average gains of roughly 15,000 jobs a month over the last year. Residential construction is hot despite rising interest rates, partially because there's little existing inventory for sale. Inflation has eased. Last month, prices were up 3% year over year. That's the smallest 12-month jump and more than two years. But it's still higher than the Fed's 2% target. I'm not here to declare victory on the economy. We have more work to do. But there's been significant progress considering America's unemployment rate, 3.6%, lingers at a historic low. Ohio's unemployment rate in June is even lower at 3.4%. Just today, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine announced four projects that are expected to create 781 new jobs across the state. Despite that, a new CBS News poll shows widespread pessimism about the economy. Roughly two-thirds describe it as bad. Most say the economy is struggling and uncertain. 70% of working Americans say those paychecks can't keep up with rising prices. 
Most say at best, financially, they're staying in place, but more than one-third say they're falling behind. Nearly half, 45 percent, think the Biden administration's actions are increasing inflation, but nearly two in three believe congressional Republicans have nothing to show in the fight to tame inflation. The message, millions of Americans are still feeling hard times while the Fed works to stick a soft landing with the economy. Ohio's current unemployment rate is at 3.4 percent. That's about 200,000 people, roughly the population of Akron. Ohio's unemployment rate is nearly equal to the national rate, which again comes in at 3.6 percent, a number that stayed about the same for a year now. New evidence now reveals Ohio has the seventh worst death rate when it comes to drug overdoses. That's according to the CDC. In 2021, around 48 per every 100,000 Ohioans died because of a drug overdose. A total of almost 5,400 Ohioans died. Neighboring West Virginia has the worst overdose death rate in the country as of 2021. There were more than 90 deaths per 100,000 people. Thank you so much for joining us on this Sunday for Face the State. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. They'll catch you up on the loss of Issue 1 on Tuesday. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias. I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day. You're not the right fit for this job. Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me. I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor. Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition. You want to feel important. You want to be a part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. Opening a My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal record and interactive tools tailored for you. You can see if you are eligible to receive benefits, view spousal benefit estimates, and compare retirement benefit estimates at different ages or dates when you want to start receiving benefits. Already receiving benefits? Use your account to change your address, set up or change direct deposit, get a proof of income letter, and more. In most states, you can also request a replacement Social Security card. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. 
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Holly Holson, who is the state director for AARP in Ohio. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, tell us uh, what AARP is. AARP is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization fighting to empower Ohioans to live how they want as they age. Okay, and uh, you are trying to get the word out about the number of Ohioans who are caring for elderly relatives. Uh, I guess that's been skyrocketing, right? Yeah, every day we know that more than 48 million people in the U.S. take care of parents, spouses, grandparents, and other loved ones so they can live independently as long as possible. And here in Ohio, more than 1.5 million are providing about $21 billion worth of unpaid care for a loved one. Wow, one and a half million. That number would have been just uh, inconceivable probably 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, and what we need to remember is most of us are or have been or will be in the future a family caregiver or will need help to live independently as we age. And I guess the the problem is that, you know, a lot of these people that do this are obviously it's almost like a second job for them to take care of an elderly person in their household. But they have to juggle that with everything else in their life. And and there's nothing to show for it. Yeah, you, you know, you're right. You know, family caregivers help with everything, including medication, medical care, meals, bathing, dressing, grocery shopping, transportation, and much more. And we know that about 50% of female caregivers have had to leave the workforce or reduce their hours. And they're also spending about $7,000 a year out of their own pockets on care-related costs. So what sort of help is available, uh, you know, uh, I know that Ohio, for a long time, governors have talked about increasing programs that help the elderly stay at home rather than go into a nursing home. Does that help in some of these causes, maybe with professional home health care or things like that? Yeah, you know, it's really important that lawmakers provide family caregivers with some help, as you mentioned, so their older loved ones can stay at home. You know, and we're making progress. Um, you know, for example, the White House recently signed an executive order that provides support for family caregivers. And a recent AARP survey found that 75% of voters 50-plus think it's important for Congress to help Americans stay in their homes. And that's why we're out here mobilizing caregivers to fight for some common-sense solutions. And right now, our state budget, one of the important provisions that was actually cut from the Senate version were the Healthy Aging Grants. And this was $40 million to help keep people at home. And it's really important that we start supporting caregivers and take action to prevent them from staying in nursing homes that, quite frankly, cost taxpayers money. I keep seeing a statistic that says something like 10,000 baby boomers nationwide are retiring every day, which means beyond retirement, that means that, you know, probably that many per day are moving into areas where we're just living at home and maintaining their own health is becoming more and more difficult. Yeah, and, you know, staying at home can become more difficult. 
but it's really important that we listen to the challenges caregivers are facing and take action because it helps save time, money, and it really keeps people where they want to be, which is at home. What is the the logic behind cutting back on those services in Ohio? Is it just part of budget trimming, you know, trying to find money in one place and putting it in a different place or what? You know, that is a great question. And that's why we keep fighting to support caregivers, because it's common sense. We can keep people at home and we can save Medicaid dollars. What about the staffing problem with, uh, you know, home health care, maybe nurses that go into the homes? I know that nursing homes themselves are having problems with staffing levels as well. Yeah. And, you know, AARP Ohio has been very supportive of supporting staff and residents in nursing homes. And part of that does have to do with wages. But along with wages, we want to make sure that nursing homes are providing quality care and it's transparent and they are accountable to the residents in giving that care. We want to make sure any extra dollars actually goes to providing direct care services to residents, which means paying for wages. Talking with Holly Holson, she's the state director for Ohio for AARP. What sort of uh, advice do you have for family members that are in this situation where they're caring for a loved one in the home? That's a great question. You know, while we continue fighting for caregivers, there are some steps that you can take now to empower yourself and your loved ones, such as, you know, make sure you keep the home safe. Make adaptations. Uh, to your loved one's home to accommodate their needs and make it less hazardous. You know, this could be even a simple fix, such as removing a rug, improving lighting to prevent falls. You know, bigger changes could happen, such as uh, adding a wheelchair ramp as well. We suggest you stay organized. Caregivers are tracking a lot of information, you know, emergency phone numbers, health records, and it can become very overwhelming. There are caregiving apps that can help you stay on top of everything. There are also local services and resources that may also be able to provide some help. We also suggest that you advocate for yourself. Let doctors know that you are the primary caregiver and need to be informed about your loved one's condition. Make sure you're asking for training if you're expected to do procedures, you know, such as injecting medication or changing bandages. And lastly and not least, make sure you ask for help. Don't be afraid to rely on your team of family and friends to fill in on some of your caregiving tasks so you can take a break and take care of yourself. Don't feel guilty. It's so important to care for yourself as well. You know, these responsibilities are massive, and they also come with a lot of stress and in some cases maybe even risk because if you've got, you know, as you mentioned, maybe some hazards around the home, falling is a huge, I think it's the number one cause of death for older Americans. So you've got to make sure, as you said, that the house is safe, plus balancing medications and all that stuff. Right. It's important just to look at your surroundings and make those small adjustments to keep your loved ones safe. If people want more information about all this, Holly, how do they find it? We have some great information on our website. We have the AARP Family Caregiving website at aarp.org slash caregiving. 
And we offer free care guides, information, checklists, and online community that support all types of caregivers. And you'll also find our Ohio Caregiver Resource Guide that provides some state-specific uh, information and access to programs, services, and agencies in the community. Okay, aarp.org slash caregiving. Uh, again, it's uh, Holly Holson. She is the state director for Ohio with the AARP. Thanks so much for the information. Thank you for having me today. Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I got to tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. Wow, your story is so... uh, Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) When people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. Green, green, green. It's our home, it's our dream. For a life that's healthy and clean, make it green, green, green. My mom said making it green is making sure the air in your home is healthy for your family to breathe. Make sure you test your home for radon. It's easy. Just call 866-730-GREEN. Make it green, green, green. A message from the US EPA. Cancer screening can save your life. Begin cervical screening at age 25. At 45, colorectal and breast screening. At 50, discuss lung screening with a doctor. Find resources for free and low-cost screening at cancer.org slash get screen. This is a public service message from the American Cancer Society. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dr. Whitney Raglan Bignall, who is the Associate Clinical Director of On Our Sleeves at Nationwide Children's Hospital. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. I think we've all heard of On Our Sleeves at the hospital, but tell us what it is. Yes, so on our sleeve, basically, we recognize that children don't wear their thoughts on their sleeves. You know, they don't often have the words to express their feelings and the things that they're struggling with, um, and they need a voice. And so on our sleeves is a movement for children's mental health so that we can be the champions for child mental health and help break down stigma in our community. And this is really kind of uh, a big part of uh, all that development that we're seeing at Nationwide, right? Uh, kind of uh, focusing on mental health with kids. Yes, um, it's, a, it's a really important. Um, we know that there's currently a mental health crisis and um, the hospital, as well as um, on our sleeves as a part of it, um, is really trying to help um, that mental health crisis and reduce the challenges that our community is facing around that. And it's so interesting because this initiative began before the pandemic, but it seems like the the timing could not have been better because of the impact the pandemic has had. Exactly. You know, we had been seeing in 
increasing numbers for many, many years. I mean, even before the pandemic, we knew one in five children were um, having a mental health challenge. Um, but as we know, with the pandemic, things have gotten worse. And so it was a perfect timing that we were able to develop on our sleeves and to start this work. Uh, you're a, also a psychologist and a pediatrics professor at OSU, so I feel like you have a, a pretty good handle on what we're going to talk about here, which is a survey that was conducted for the On Our Sleeves movement and some pretty eye-opening things that you were finding out in terms of kids and where they stand and also their interaction with their parents. Yeah, so we found in general that, you know, <clears throat> 50% of parents have noticed that um, their child's mental health is suffering um, due to social media in the past 12 months. Um, and only like 35% of um, parents could say that social media it has a positive influence, which is actually a decrease from just last year when it was 43%. So we're seeing that people are reporting that social media is negatively impacting their kids. And because of that, we really feel that we should be talking a lot more about it. And this is so interesting because we're now getting to the period where parents also grew up online, you know, whereas it's, it's only been a few years that we've been able to say that. When we talk about social media, what is the biggest concern? Is it the is it places like Facebook and Instagram, or is it TikTok, or what? So I don't think we're saying that it's a specific app, but it's more about what they're doing on the app. And so social media, I want to say, can have some positive influences. It's not all bad. You know, kids can be, you know, creative, and it can help you build community, especially if you're old enough and mature enough to be on social media. But I do think that we really have to be mindful of the fact that there are a lot of risks, too, on social media that we have to kind of keep in mind. And so, um, you know, parents, when they're thinking about it, we need to be looking at specifically, you know, like what our kids are watching, <laughs> um, what they're consuming, if they're receiving certain types of ads. Um, do they understand um, how to decipher things that are, you know, true or that mis um communication or deceptions that can occur online and um, there's also cyberbullying that happens so you really want to make sure that no matter what the app is that um, you understand what's happening and what information your child can consume. I saw a recent stat that said that the average uh, user now on TikTok is on there an hour, more than an hour and a half a day and uh, mm -hmm. just almost an hour on YouTube as well. But that's an average, which means that there's a lot of people that are spending a lot more time than that on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think um, the Surgeon General mentioned that there's like with the surveys they did that 81% of 14 to 22 year olds were using social media daily like almost constantly and I don't know about you but I mean with our phones in our hands all the time it's just so easy with every free moment to kind of be you know on there. You know a lot of these videos are very brief some of them can be kind of helpful and it's an astounding amount of information good and bad that some right. somebody can absorb in a short amount of time. Exactly so part of it is that you are consuming so much information how do you know um, with what you're consuming, what is accurate, <laughs> and um, when something has maybe crossed a boundary that you don't want and shouldn't be consuming it. 
Is it fair to say that maybe this is kind of uh, putting a barrier or some sort of a problem, a communication problem between parents and their kids? Um, So I don't know if it's necessarily the barrier, but I do think it is something that parents need to be actively working to communicate with their children about. We know that... um, Parents need to be monitoring what their children are doing online, and one way to help that is that you need to have regular conversations with them about everything so that this topic of social media is something that they also feel comfortable sharing with you. And, you know, if we aren't talking and we're spending most of our time online, sometimes then we can isolate or feel disconnected, and so they it can cause breakdowns in relationships. And if it's doing that, then that is one of the things we need to think about that it maybe we're using it too much or it's it's harmful to the relationships we have. Talking with Dr. Whitney Ragland-Bignall, she is the Associate Clinical Director of On Our Sleeves at Nationwide Children's Hospital. So with this sort of information that On Our Sleeves gets through this research, what will you do with it? So we have actually created materials on our website that parents can reference to help them navigate this. So we have articles specifically about how to talk about social media with your children. We also talk about um, identifying those warning signs if it's becoming problematic. And one of the things that I think is really exciting is also talking about what can families do. They can make a family contract about social media, and we provide resources on how to do that for families on our website. Okay, and where is that online? How do folks find it? Yeah, so if you go to onoursleeves.org, there is a link right there for social media, um, and it'll take you to all the different articles. Okay. You know, I've uh, been reading articles, too, about isolation becoming a big deal with teens uh, and young adults, especially men, that young men are almost checking out of the dating world and being absorbed in, it could be video games, it could be pornography, just simply kind of hunkering down and being in their own world and becoming less social. Yes, you know, the Surgeon General did come out with a report on loneliness, and it is something that I think, you know, we're all very aware that um, isolation is a, a very big challenge and so one of the things at on our sleeves that we've been trying to highlight a lot is conversation operation conversation um, which helps and encourages families to start talking more because we really want um, all of us to be working to connect social connection is so important and so operation conversation is one of the ways in which we can do that and hopes to try to break down some of that isolation that um, people might be experiencing And this uh, online bullying that you referenced earlier is uh, also a huge concern uh, with any kid. And I'm assuming, too, that, you know, perhaps kids in the LGBTQ community even more so. Yes, I think children in all marginalized groups are at risk, you know, and we know that the research from, like, um, the American Psychological Association have highlighted that, in particular, minoritized groups are at risk, specifically on social media and for on social media for discrimination and things like that. And so, um, with any group and for all children, I think that's one of the main things that parents need to be looking out for is what they're consuming, because there are lots of harmful things out there that can really be harmful to the identity of our children. I'm curious what your take and and other experts in the field what their take is about this influence and and whether it's good or bad in the long run, because 
You know, I mean, there's always been something, right? I mean, a hundred years ago, it was when movies came out, television and radio. Yeah, you know, the truth is, is that, like I mentioned before, social media is not all bad. There are some advantages and to being on social media, especially if you're old enough and mature enough. But with anything, it's always good to have moderation and to understand the dangers of when something is not good for you. So, for instance, we want to make sure that when children um, are on social media that they're mature enough to understand the dangers of it and are ready for it and that parents and children have had conversations about it so that it can be monitored and they have rules about it within their families. But also, you know, we don't ever want something to be all-consuming in our lives that we stop doing other important things. Um, And that is when it gets worrisome because for our mental health, we need balance. We need to be physically active. We need social connection. And so we just have to make sure that one thing isn't becoming too big in our lives that we neglect other important things that we know are good for our mental health. Talking with Dr. Whitney Raglan-Bignall, she is the Associate Clinical Director of On Our Sleeves. What should parents be watching for with their kids? So, in general, if we want to make sure that they're not on it too much, and one of the ways that we can see that is if they become very upset uh, when they don't have access to it, um, or they're beginning to isolate so much um, due to just being on it so much, um, we want to really look out for changes in their mood, so are they more irritable, um, and things such as sleep. So we know that in general, sometimes kids don't like sleeping, but sleep is so important for mental health. And so if social media is getting in the way of a child or youth getting enough sleep, then that would be something we would want parents to address. There's been some moves by lawmakers to regulate these services more by making them stick to rules about, you know, not allowing young kids to be on and to make them get parental permission at a certain age to provide an ID to be able to get online. Do you favor restrictions like that? I do, because I think that in order for this to work, we need um, everyone working toward it. So we need restrictions from the companies, but we also and and policymakers, but we also need parents, right? Because, you know, children are very smart and, you know, without parental guidance and monitoring, um, even if you have policies, they can often get around them. So I think it's important that we all kind of work together to help ensure the safety of our kids and making sure that they're consuming social media at the right time. Yeah, that's the. I guess the big concern would be, you know, if if it becomes sort of taboo to them, it's only going to drive them <laughs> more to want to be involved. And you've seen how they can handle uh, anything electronic, boy. They're <laughs> they're so good at it, right? So the goal is really is not necessarily to make it taboo, but to have good conversations within the family, so that we know when they are consuming it, they know what to look out for, and they know the rules within the house to make it. Um, so that it's done within balance and safely. Yeah. It seems like leadership among student activists who are mindful about this kind of thing would be a great thing to see grow in schools these days. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. I think the more we can get everyone on board, especially peers, the better. Talking with Dr. Whitney Raglan-Bignall. She's the Associate Clinical Director of On Our Sleeves at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Anything else you'd like to add? Just that, you know... Not only should we be talking to our kids, but we want to make sure that we're modeling good behavior. They watch us, and as a 
as adults are on our phones a lot too. So if we want them to have certain behaviors and be mindful of things, we got to make sure we show them how to do it. Um, and there are so many resources on our website, so please um, don't hesitate to check them out on onoursleeves.org. Once again, that's uh, onoursleeves.org. Uh, and I'm talking with Dr. Whitney Raglan Bignall. She is the Associate Clinical Director of On Our Sleeves. Thanks so much for your information today. I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.